The Gist is brought to you by Harry's, the new shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door, all at a fraction of the price of other razors. Visit harrys.com and use the promo code THEGIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, November 4th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I leave Chicago today, fly back to New York, get back in time to vote, because I gotta help decide if Governor Cuomo's gonna win by 40 points or 30 points. You know, one's a man date, the other's just a boy date. But I also want to be there when my favorite election day tradition comes to pass. It's the speech, the losing candidate speech. And he'll get up there, and he'll always say, all right, all right, I just got off the phone with my opponent. No! That jerk! We hate that guy! And then the candidate will say, no, no, no. Listen, she ran a fine race, and I'm sure those flyers depicting me with a short, dark mustache directly under my nose, stiffly raising my hand, could be interpreted as Charlie Chaplin doing calisthenics. I know, I'm rigid, I'm a relic. I'm sure that's what she was saying. I love that. No, 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 no. But just once, I want to see it go the other way, where the politician, you know, says, just got off the phone with my opponent, and the crowd's like, oh yeah, she's okay. We like her, she's pretty good. And the politician, what? You're you're cheering that she-devil? Did you even watch the debates? Did you see her ads? My kids have to change their names. And they already have two first names. So now they're going to have to have two last names. Yeah, I'd like to thank my daughter, O'Dowerty Grossman. On the show today, in the spiel, another political tradition. Say something nice. And Brad Meltzer, writer of fiction, comic books, and TV shows like Jack and Bobby about the Kennedys as kids, has a new TV show out. I talked to him about history's missing icons. But first, let's raise a glass to Election Day, which is actually now legal in all 50 states. So Election Day 2014, you could drink in South Carolina. That has not happened before. There are now no dry states statewide on Election Day. South Carolina liquor stores will be able to sell you liquor, but in order to get this, they had to swap out another day. So no Christmas liquor at South Carolina liquor stores. But yep, Election Day drinking. Don't know how that will affect who's elected. But I wanted to share a story of Election Day and booze. And joining me now is a man who uh, will disguise his identity. He is Kuzmando. Guzmando. He is Joe Pesca. He is my father. And in the background is uh, his wife, Neela, my mother, who we've told a lot of stories in the family. And I'm just going to say she's probably going to chime in at some point, though she's not mic'd. Is that right, Mom? That's right, Mike. All right, gee, God. <laughs> tell me. Tell me about this place you and your friends used to go to. When was it and what was the group? Uh, it was a group of uh, friends of mine. There were a steady group of like four couples and sometimes went up to eight couples. We would, we would go there periodically, and what we always did was we stopped at the bar before we had our filet mignon or whatever steak that we were having, and we had our martinis. Wait, hold on. What, what was this place? Where was this place? It was, it was in Greenwich Village in Manhattan, and it was Monero's, a Monero Steakhouse. And we would stop at the bar, and we'd have a big shaker of martinis each, about three glasses of martini in each. We'd have two pitches each. So that would wait, wait, You would have six martinis before dinner? Six to eight. 
So wait a minute, wait. You could not have ate martinis before you had your steak. We had them on the rocks. So. Oh, the rock. Okay, I'm sorry. Wait, was a martini then different from what a martini is now, which is just a basic delivery system for gin? It was. Uh, we we tried to have them all very dry martinis. It was sometimes vodka martinis and sometimes gin martinis. Okay. And we would go there, and my wife currently, she would come with me, and she would. We would have our dinner after we had our martinis and with dinner we would have wine or beer and after dessert we would have uh at the time i think it was cream de menthe that we always had after dinner drink. Oh, I, th- I thought you were going to say cream brulee for dessert but you were naming another kind of alcoholic beverage a cream de menthe before we went out drinking <laughs> no no you're lying about that i am i am not <laughs> i am not i'm sorry to say that I, as a matter of fact, one of the times I stopped at the call box yeah. and asked to be arrested. <laughs> Why? I thought I shouldn't be walking the streets. <laughs> and so this was what? Your friends, uh, Delaney Mitchell? And O'Reilly. All right, Delaney Mitchell and O'Reilly. And then others. And, then others. and others would join, join in. Yeah. And mom, my wife, would always say the stakes aren't so good. And we always said, they're great. This is great stakes. You know, everything was great. So one time we went, my wife and I, weren't married at the time, we went to Monero's because that was my favorite place. We went to have our steak dinner, filet mignon, and we went to the bar, and I said I would like to have my martinis. And they knew our original, they, they knew what to have, and they said, we can't because it's primary day. At the time, primary days, you could not drink before the polls closed. So we did not drink. Neela, my wife, never drank. She did not drink at all. I was the only one who didn't drink. You're off mic. And so we went to have our regular food, and I said, oh, my God, this steak does not taste good. And she said, I've been telling you that for a long time. This steak does not taste good. I said, I think there's a reason why this steak, and Mom said, of course, I've been telling you for so long. It's because you've been drinking all that time. And I said, oh, and... We did not have it, and we went back and we told our friends how bad the steak was, and they said, no, can't be. And they tried it without drinking and said, oh, my God, you're right. As an aside, shortly thereafter, within the year, the place closed. And I don't know if we kept them open because we used to go too often, but they closed, and they only had one more open in Long Island. Yeah. And that was our uh, noting that you should not be drinking before Voting or eating. <laughs> so, really, but the important thing is eating. Eating is, that was the main reason we were going. So, after that, you defer to her unmarinated in alcohol taste buds, did you? You defer to her taste in restaurants, am I right? Oh, only on primary days. Otherwise, I went to my own taste. Joe Pasca, martini drinker, steak lover, raconteur, thank you. You're welcome, Mike. All right, now we'll get the details that were left out or not emphasized. The raconteur's addenda. Go ahead. What did we get right? What did we get wrong? Well, we got right that they drank uh, six to eight martinis prior to dinner. And I didn't, I used to drink milk. And the reason I drank milk is I had had some kind of thing where I was supposed to drink, I take medication with milk or something. So I did. The first time I met Jim Delaney, which was one of dad's very good friends, who probably if he stopped drinking would have closed about five breweries because 
Uh, he was he was quite the drinker. And uh, we sat at the bar, and everybody ordered their martinis, and they asked me what I wanted, and I said, I'd like some milk, please. And he looked at me with this bewildered uh, expression on his face. He said, what are you having for dinner, pablum? And uh, I said, no, and we became very good friends after that, but I kept telling him that the, the steak was not good. Did it really close uh, very soon thereafter? Yeah, maybe. I don't know if it was you that did it. Anyway, that's my story. Harry's is the name of a razor blade company, but it's more than that. It is the name of the razor blade company I am about to use right now. This, that is my beard. This, that is the water I am about to use. You know, Harry's was founded by two guys who care about shaving. They bought a blade factory in Germany. That should tell you about the craftsmanship it's kind of unfair that German just means craftsmanship, but in this case, it does. And they're selling a starter shave set for 15 bucks. You get a razor, you get three blades, and your choice of Harry's Shave Cream and their new sh foaming shave gel. I just like the shave cream. Here I am in Chicago. I pack the cream, and, uh, you know, it doesn't take up a lot. It's not, it doesn't weigh a lot, right? It's not one of those metal containers. So I ask you to go to Harry's. Dot com and Harry's will give you five dollars off if you type in my code the gist that's h a r r y s dot com and enter the coupon code the gist five dollars off change the way you shave forever look at this did I stop did I pause did I go ow no clean shave over 150 historical and cultural artifacts are reported stolen every single month. Have you seen this? The Wright Brothers' original patent for their flying machine, missing. The original Apollo moon landing tapes, gone. The original targeting maps for Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And even JFK's brain. Brad Meltzer is a busy, busy guy. He writes bestsellers like The Inner Circle and The Fifth Assassin. It's a line of kids' books, Ordinary People Change the World. He has a lot of clothes based on those kid books. You might know him from comic books like Identity Crisis and Green Arrow, creates TV shows, consulted for the actual Department of Homeland Security. And like a lot of people who are really busy, he has a problem with lost items, misplaced items, you know, a sweater, car keys, actually not that. Brad Meltzer's lost items cannot possibly possibly be so mundane. His lost items are Jackie Kennedy's pillbox hat that she was wearing in Dallas, the original moon landing footage with Neil Armstrong, things like this. It's part of a new TV show called Brad Meltzer's Lost History. It's on the H2 network Fridays at 10 and Brad Meltzer's current present is to be here with me. Hello, Brad. Good to see you, pal. So how'd you get into, you're not a historian, though you're interested in historical topics. Why the lost parts of history? You know, I was researching a novel, The Inner Circle, at the National Archives, and I found out that they have their own group that looks for search lost and stolen artifacts. And my first thought was that I found that was, what do you mean? What's lost? What's stolen? Mm -hmm. what is, what's on the list? And they told me, you know, it was the Wright Brothers patent for the very original airplane. And I was like, 
that's not just like some random sheet of paper from like the Department that's of the Interior, true, that's right? Important. Like that's an important like, one. If we have a Smithsonian that should go there, right? And we right, do, and we and do, and it that, should, right? Yeah. I mean, and it should, and to me, that should be in the archives. That that's a big thing. I want to take my kid. You know, the the Wright brothers when I went when they went to fly their first plane. They would bring extra materials from multiple crashes, which means every time they went out, they knew they would fail. They would crash and rebuild and crash and rebuild, and that's why they took off. And I love that story. And I want my kids to hear that story, and I want them to see that artifact and say, this is what we're capable of on our best days. Now, Jackie Kennedy's hat, that's not the sort of thing where if we had it, history would be different. And yet it does seem important as an artifact of a very important event in history. What's the story? How Did some collector steal that? Yeah, you know, it's a crazy story. So, of course, the pink suit that she wore when Kennedy dies is in the National Archives. But the hat's gone. No one knows where the hat is. And some people say it was stolen. Other people say a family member has it. We're going to eventually get to that one. But when I found this list, you know, then we then you started getting into the crazy stuff, right? The, the flag that the firefighters raised on 9-11 at Ground Zero is missing. James Bond's Aston Martin from Goldfinger is stolen. Now you're talking about major cool stuff. And in fact, we even do JFK's brain. Yeah. JFK's brain. Let me say that again slowly. <laughs> JFK's brain let me is get missing. that brain through my brain. And so when, when is we there start, a market for stolen brains? I mean, <laughs> here's the thing. is for, for that one, I don't think for one second anyone's bringing back the brain, yeah. right? I mean, his body, of course, famously when he was shot, goes to Arlington National Cemetery. The brain, which I didn't know, was kept separate. And no forensic testing was done on it, despite that it could have taught us actually amazing things about trajectory and bullets. The crazy part of the whole story is that at one point in time, someone in the U.S. government puts his brain in a metal jar, and they're walking around Washington, D.C. with JFK's brain in it. And they exchange it with someone else, and it goes missing. And it's, you know people want to say it's a conspiracy theory. Look, it's the cover-up. It's this. But when you look at who we think the suspect is, you know sometimes history is much more complex than that. It's not good versus evil. The suspect here is a family member. And if it was, God forbid, my sister or yeah. a brother, and you told me that... They were killed, and I could prevent, in that moment, having America not exploit their remains. Well, that's the thing. It's I not, would have done it. It's not even a weird, macabre thing, maybe, for a family member, if, if it was a family member with the brain or Jackie's hat. It's a prevention of, maybe of in their minds, a prevention of someone profiting, a prevention of looking at the worst moment of your uncle, dad, whoever's life, and, you know, have that be a museum for someone. The reason that the Warren Commission, mm-hmm. the one great mistake of many mistakes that it made was secrecy. And even the guy who was one of the lead investigators said that the biggest mistake that was made when JFK was killed and the Warren Commission looked into it was that the Kennedy family impressed upon Earl Warren, please don't release the autopsy photos. Please don't release any of the pictures of his dead body. And it wasn't a cover-up. It wasn't some mastermind game. It was like, we don't want pictures of our dead relatives yeah. circulating throughout the universe. But maybe the unintended consequence of that is to exacerbate their of pain. Of course. Well, that's makes, the problem. I'm sure they're offended as anything by all these conspiracy theories. Now, oh, listen, imagine you, you in that moment, they think they're doing the right thing, right? Yeah. Everyone thinks Just don't. You and, can't and navigate that. There's no right, playbook. Right. No, there's that. no right. playbook. And so... I would have done no different. I would, have, you know, my mother and father are dead. You tell me that someone wants to take their picture and publish it. I would do everything in mm-hmm. my power to stop that person. That is just no question, out of bounds. Don't touch it. But to me, what's important? I don't expect anyone to bring the brain back, right? I don't, I, we're putting a reward at the end of lost history. We'll give you ten thousand dollars. You help yeah. us find it, and I hope we'll find some things. That's yeah. the goal. I know the brain's not coming back, 
But what I do want to know is at one moment in time, there were two people who met on a certain day and exchanged that brain. It's an important story. I mean, someone took it. You just want to know. If the people behind this were the Pawn Stars people or someone with a different orientation, they'd love to see the object. You want the story. You yeah, want no, as no, much I realize of the truth fleshed you out. You know me. Thing. I mean, I, I never care about seeing it, touching it, feel like... What I love is story. And it's why I do fiction and nonfiction. I just love a good story because you know why? There's power in story. There's nothing more powerful than a really good story. And so you're actually revealing and telling me what I've already observed, that your orientation, that of the historian, but also that of the storyteller. I mean, you know that an emotional connection to anything just trumps every bit of fact. Every politician knows this. And, you know, if I go through the list of books you've written, the list of comic books you've written, the list of Buffy the Vampire comic books that you've brought to screen, that's what it's all about, right? It's all about the story and nothing about the fact of the object. To me, they're all about one thing, and it's my belief and my core belief. I believe ordinary people change the world. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care how much money you make. That's nonsense to me. I believe in regular people and their ability to affect change in this world. And if you look at this story, what I love is that human moment. I don't care about the president. I care about that guy who was walking around with the brain, and he has to say, oh, my God, on this day, what do I do? What's the right thing to do? Do I hand it over to who I should, or do I give it maybe potentially to a family member and give them peace? And that's a hard moment. And I think you know, we want to always see everything as like the big people make things happen. Mm-hmm. That's just not how the world works. And so in my in the comics, in the novels, in the kids books, in lost history, it's always just empowering people to realize what these stories are are not the stories of famous people. Yeah. It's what we're capable of on, as I said, those very best days. And the kids books, what you've had, uh, Albert Einstein, Abraham Lincoln, Amelia Earhart. Right, so patent clerk, uh, log cabin. Regular I don't know. People. I don't know Amelia Earhart's back. Amelia Earhart, you know, rich? no, no, she's not. She, she's not. She's, she doesn't have a great childhood. But what she does is, she's a daring kid. She builds a when she's seven years old a homemade roller coaster in her backyard. So when we do, I am Amelia Earhart, or I am Abraham Lincoln, or any of those. My kids, if I tell them that Amelia Earhart flew across the Atlantic Ocean, my kids are like, my daughter says, big deal, Dad, everyone does. <laughs> but I tell her that Amelia Earhart built a homemade roller coaster in her backyard and took a wooden crate and put roller skating wheels on the bottom, shoved it to the roof of her tool shed, and then came careening down the side of her roof down to the ground, crashed through the air. My daughter's like, Dad, she's amazing. She's fun like me. And now Amelia Earhart is not some black and white figure in a history book. But she's alive again. And anyway, as a kid's book, the girl who built a roller coaster in her backyard is more compelling than the girl who flew across the ocean. And right, and, <laughs> like and the roller coaster but in we the forget. Is fiction. But right, like my yeah. favorite Abraham Lincoln story that I found, and it's not in any Abraham Lincoln biography you can find. I actually found it going through one of the Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln study centers at Knox College, and one of the leading scholars gave it to me. He's like, "You need to hear this story." And took me back to the original writing of it. Is that Abraham Lincoln, when his little boy, loved turtles? And I mean, loved animals. And he comes upon these group of boys playing with turtles. And he's like, I love turtles. Races over to play with them. The boys aren't playing with turtles. They're putting hot coals on the backs of the turtles to make them run faster. Mm-hmm. And what they do is torturing the turtles. And Abraham Lincoln in that moment has to decide what the right thing to do is. And when you're 10 years old or you're 40 years old, sometimes it's hard to do the right thing, but someone has to. And when my son hears that story, he's like, Dad, I want to be like him. And now Abraham Lincoln... You know, if you if you shake any kid in America and say, who's Abraham Lincoln? They will blurt out immediately, free the slaves. Yeah. They don't even know what it means. They don't even really care what it means. They have no point of reference for it, but we beat that into their heads. 
but you give them something they can care about and relate to, standing yeah. up to the bully. Yeah. Now he's a real person again. And I think that's what the mistake history makes is we, we try to go to dates and facts and details and we forget that human moment that shows where real strength is. Well, George Washington and the cherry tree was fake, but Abraham oh, yeah. Lincoln and the turtles is real. He did. He, that's he what did. he did. He stood up to the bullies and rescued the, bullies. the turtles. Yeah. Brad Meltzer is the host and executive producer of this new show on H2, Brad Meltzer's Lost History. Thank you, Brad. Thanks, brother. And now the spiel. Tip O'Neill once said, politics ain't beanbag, which suffers from subject-verb agreement, doesn't it? I mean, no one brings this up. Anyway, it doesn't mean that politics can't be warm and fuzzy at times. At least that's what debate moderators want to bring about. They want civility and moderation. It's right there in the name. So what better way to evoke this than to ask a combative candidate, hey, would you please say something nice about your opponent? So here a candidate is faced with a choice. Usually, candidates are asked to be aggressive, but now they're being asked to be passive-aggressive, different skill set. There are a couple of tactics. One, you might just want to say nothing important. Just acknowledge the obvious. Like, um, you're running against a politician, so praise him or her for being a politician. You can't say, well, this dude's a politician, but you can talk about service, like Chris Christie did. She's obviously someone who cares deeply about public service in the state because she's dedicated a lot of her life to it. They're also Michelle Nunn showing us how it's done. David, also for your uh, commitment to public service. And here's Greg Orman of Kansas showing us that service can also mean military service. I appreciate his service in the Marines. And sometimes you could praise both kinds of service. It makes you look patriotic and solution-oriented. At least that's what Iowa Democrat Bruce Braley was going for. Well, I admire the fact that Senator Ernst has served our nation and our state and the Iowa National Guard. Also, a trait common to humans of running for office age is that they have quite often convinced a member of the opposite sex to mate. Use that. It could just be the spouse. I think he's got a really nice wife. That was John Tester of Montana from a few years back. Here, Joni Erst brings the kids into it. Congressman Braley is a great father. And David Perdue of Georgia and Connecticut's Linda McMahon give the kids a little pinch on the cheeks, too. You have a great family that anybody would pray for. Well, I think one of the nicest things that I've seen about Congressman Murphy are his two little boys. They are so cute. <laughs> now, if the opponent noticed, hey, that's not really a nice thing about me, it might seem churlish. Still, Chris Murphy of Connecticut just has to bring that up. Well, for the record, I think Linda McMahon said nice things about my little boys. <laughs> All right. A slightly bolder tactic is to offer praise over some really small bore thing that the candidate has no control over. It might fall into the category of vanity. Go for it, Pat Roberts. Uh, I would say that you are a very well-dressed <laughs> opponent. Or it could be totally irrelevant. To wit, failed New Jersey gubernatorial candidate Barbara Buono. Well, he's good on late night TV. He's just not so good in New Jersey. Then there's golf. And somebody recently told me something that I didn't know about you, which is that you have a very good golf game. <laughs> Seems to take a lot out of Michelle Nunn. But really, when candidates are asked to gush, of course, they're really going to want to go for the shiv. Now here, Conrad Burns begins by saying what a great guy John Tester is. Well, there's not too many things that, that, uh, that you don't like about John Tester. Great guy. Great start. He reminds me of a good friend of mine that I had in the United States Senate, and he represented Minnesota. His name is John Well or, or uh, uh, Wellstone. Paul Wellstone. All right, hurts the anecdote a little when you can't remember your good friend's name. He was a pure 
He was a pure, really liberal, ultra liberal. There it is. There it is. I really admire my opponent. He just has this real set of beliefs that you, the voters of Montana, abhor. That really is admirable. Of course, you could just ignore the praise your opponent question and tout your own achievements. Yeah, I, uh, I, there's two or three things I'm very proud of. One is uh, bucking the system. But c comments about your opponents. My opponents? Yeah. I don't know. I don't follow them. <laughs> or you could just do what Charlie Chris did. This is some super high-wire jujitsu, and it clearly shocks his opponents. I want to commend him on how he has uh, handled the Ebola situation. Uh, I want to commend him. Did you catch that? The short, sincere-seeming sentiment so discombobulates Rick Scott that all Scott could do is say, wow, yeah, thanks. That's, that was pretty nice of him. <laughs> and if that all fails, just go with the fact that they all have attractive, well-dressed children who are probably good at golf. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is the producer of The Gist. She's fine with a Republican mini-wave, but fears a mugwump monsoon. Joel Meyer, managing producer of Slate Podcast, has made his peace with a doe-faced deluge. Welcomes it even. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, wobbles between the Wobblies and the Free Soil Democrats, and he has a bumper shoot to forestall massive infusions of either. You can subscribe to us on iTunes while you're there. Give us a review. Those really help. I love to read them. Even the nasty ones. Okay, not the nasty ones. Get our daily email at slate.com slash gist email. We are on Yo. You can get notified by signing up for Yo. We are on facebook.com slash slate gist. The video of say something nice about your opponents, that's up there. Email the gist at slate.com. I have resigned myself to the fact that the rent is too damn high party will once more be shut out. Though we had a shaky coalition. Maybe we shouldn't have merged with the rent is not damn high enough party and that anti-Judy Dench faction known as the Dame is too high rent party. Yeah, you live, you learn. Thanks for listening. <laughs>